When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Creative Media, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Van Halen. Only one other band has accomplished what these rock and roll legends have, releasing two albums that sold over 10 million copies in the United States. And Def Leppard is that band. These rock and rollers Armageddon their way to both massive commercial success with over 100 million albums sold over their storied 45-year career and peer respect with their 2019 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And to think it all started with a group of young lads from Sheffield in the UK. Def Leppard beat the odds all along the way with authenticity, dedication, and sheer talent that fused classic rock with poppy irresistible hooks and fond, memorable lyrics that grab you and never let go. They formed during an era dominated by punk and blew up during the early 1980s new wave. And amazingly, they recorded their biggest smash of all time, the 10 times platinum album Hysteria, with their drummer who had just lost an arm in a tragic accident. In this episode, I interviewed Def Leppard charismatic singer and songwriter Joe Elliott about the band's signature song, Pour Some Sugar On Me from Hysteria. It's a very special, timeless, and absolutely fascinating collection of insider stories told by the artist himself. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with the great Joe Elliott, lead singer and songwriter of Def Leppard, one of the most successful rock bands of all time. Only five bands have had two albums that went diamond status in the U.S., Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and Van Halen, and you. Like, how does all of that feel? It's easy to take things like that as, like, with a pinch of salt or you feel blasé about it because often I do interviews and somebody like yourself will just point it out. And it's the only time that I really kind of con- contemplate that those figures. Yeah. Because I'm aware of them, but... It's it's a notch on the bedpost, if you like. It's been there, done that. Now what? You know. Yeah. I'm not one. I'm not one to constantly look back. We've long all accepted that we've got a great future behind us, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> the great phrases that come out of being a legacy artist these days are. But it's a fact. A hundred million records. You know, the only band, only one of five bands that's done it, and and the company that we're in is insane. And for little old us to be in in the same company as a, a Zeppelin, a Floyd, Van Halen. The Beatles. I mean, you know, when you, for me, if I do have to sit down and contemplate those numbers, I think about the bands that haven't done it. And that's just mind blowing, like the Rolling Stones, you know, the Who. Some just insanely brilliant and very influential bands on us, whether it be musically or just we're fans of them that didn't do that, you know. So, but we were born in a much more commercial era, I think. Maybe not as cool as the 60s and 70s, 
but it was an era where you sold just gazillions of records, you know, because it's the way that the industry was set up. It's a wonderful thing to be in that. that I mean, like, you, there's no Eagles there. There's no Fleetwood Mac. It's like, that's just mad. Yeah, you know? it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. That, bands that we coattail right on, on a daily basis and references like, oh, we need to write a song that's does the same thing as <laughs> Hotel California or anything off Rumours, you know. That's that's the the ideal that we, we we work by, and to reference these iconic bands that haven't sold ten million twice is kind of strange. But it's been strange ever since nineteen eighty three when you know when when people just wander up to you in the dressing room and say, "Do you realize you're actually bigger than T Rex ever were?" And you you like, but that was the first band I ever saw, and they're like such an an important part of my DNA. And then you, they go, "But they only had one top ten single ever in America." and three years with a success in the UK, but they caught me when I was 11 to 14 years old or whatever. Yeah. And so yeah. You, they'd never, they'd never drift. And when these facts and figures get thrown at you, you have to take them with a pinch of salt because otherwise you'd stop doing anything. You go, okay, well then I must've made it. So we're done. And it's like, to me, it's like, okay, what next? You look at all the bands that don't take their history as, as gospel, if you like, and they, they, try and rewrite their own history or expand their own history. And you have to look at the bands that we may be peers with as opposed to, you know, a generation below, like U2 or a Depeche Mode, a Simple Minds, any of the bands that were burnt into our retinas in 1983, <laughs> you know, on MTV, you know, Simon on the front of the yacht, uh, Bono yeah. on the roof of the shop, you know, yep. this kind of stuff. These are, the, these are the bands, if they're still around, they've done the right thing. And they may have been wilderness years for all of us, but sooner or later, if you've if you've got the fire, it kind of has the opportunity to come back because you're prepared to put the work in, and and that's what you have to do. It's this is not a gift. Nobody gave us anything. We we gave us we were given opportunities, but you have to exploit those opportunities and take them. You know, so it's looking at those numbers and going, yeah, it's one of five bands and not hundred million records. It's like, great, but where's the next hundred coming from? Or, you know, is we all know there'll never be a third Def Leppard record that sells 10 million copies because well, come, come, on saying, <laughs> come on now, Taylor, Taylor Swift or uh, an Ed Sheeran or something like that, <laughs> or some rapper that I don't know the name of is going to sell that kind of units again, but it doesn't matter because that was never our goal. It was like a, a bonus to what we set out to achieve. We we saw bands when we were growing up, whether we saw them on telly or whether we saw them live once we were allowed to go out and see shows. And we just said, that's what I want to do. And it never occurred to us to say, well, hang on, have they sold any records? Have they sold any tickets? So when we saw Rod Stewart in the faces or we saw a band in front of two people we judge them for what they were. Maybe they were on their way up if they only played in front of three men and a dog. Maybe they're on their way down because they've been there and done that. It wasn't something that you cared about. We were just listening to the songs that they'd done. And this is us before we met, you know, but we've come together and these things come up over meals or sitting around in the dressing room. And you'll, you've got so much in common with your bandmates when you were kids that it's kind of makes you think it's the reason that we we kind of drifted together, if you like, because me and Phil will forever argue which one of us was the first person in the UK to own the, the debut Montrose album. <laughs> and how many people, how many times we saw UFO and where and all this kind of stuff. And you're kind of thinking, especially me and Rick Allen and Sav, 
we were in the same venue watching the same bands in front of 1200 people a dozen times before we ever met how come yeah. we never banged into each other you know things like that that's that to me that's that's much more of an interesting aspect to what we do than how many we sell because i've always been the guy that wakes up in the morning going i hope i get inspired today to pick up my guitar or sit at the piano or pick up a pen and paper and work on that thing that's been ticking over in the back of my mind and driving me crazy and keeping me awake at night. That's my goal is to never lose that hunger to want yeah. to keep writing because yeah. I don't, I don't want to think that we've, you know, Diamond Star Halos is our last written album of new material. If you like, um, we've got drastic symphonies coming out next month, which is a different kind of record altogether. But, you know, me and Phil specifically are always talking about, well, we've got this, that and the other set up for when we next go into a writing Phase. yeah i must admit that i this at this stage of our careers and our lives it's not something that i leap into on a daily basis but it's always ticking over and i think whether you rush before neil peart passed away they were maybe doing a new album every six years i think you know the rolling stones haven't done one since 2005 i believe you know 2000 it's a quite a you know it's over a decade if not more because life takes over they've all got families and the touring commitments are enough sometimes but we were fortunate that uh covid the pandemic the the lockdown gave us the opportunity to be in this room and and everybody else in this band in their own equivalent of this room and get creative away from being on the road so we wrote songs and still got time to hang out with family and do domestic stuff. I mean, who didn't redecorate during COVID? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that's that's the main focus for us is 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 maintaining what we have, protecting the legacy, and expanding on it, not not just relying on it. Yeah, good for you. I mean, obviously, you guys continue to also reinvent yourself. Drastic Symphonies is quite a quite a change in terms of what it is, and it sounds like it's fascinating. That's coming out in May, so I want to ask you about that. Um, you know, you, you, you were talking about the guys and we're going to get into the story behind the song, pour some sugar on me, of course, like that's going to be the focus of our discussion, but there's so much to discuss, but you started with the band at such a young age. Uh, all of you were so young. And I remember like, these were my days. These, these you know, I, I grew up with Def Leppard and was a fan from the very beginning, but you started so young and you were talking about just the creativity of it all. And you always clearly liked rock and roll music because at least as I read about it, Def Leppard, that flowed from you, the name of the band. And that came from some of your own artistic creations as a young lad. So can you tell me about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, we did start out young, but you know, as you say that I was just ticking through in my mind so did every band that's worth their salt. I mean, the Beatles were probably, I mean, George was 15, I think, when they went to Hamburg. The Rolling Stones were probably in their late teens when they formed. And so were the Who and the Kinks. True. And all the, you know, there's not many bands that's, that, you know, their debut album comes out when everybody's 31. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Beatles were 27 or 28 when they split, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, true. the young thing, I think that's, that's a natural um thing for most artists and it it becomes a talking point to any band that's been around so to say to Mick Jagger he'd be going yeah I can barely remember being who I was when we formed the band because it's 60 years ago you know <laughs> yeah but yeah we were kids you know I was I was just out of school I was working in a factory 
which was my supposed des destiny for until I was 65. And thank God for the Clash and the Pistols and all those British new wave stroke punk bands that made it obvious to everybody that read about them in all the music mags in the UK that whether you like the kind of music or not, there was an alternative. <laughs> and we were really fortunate that we were going to take their snotty attitude, their finger up to society energy, but not play that kind of music. Now, we did take a lot of influence from punk in the sense of like we kept guitar solos really short, but our music was more based on what we grew up listening to with a twist. So, yeah, it was influenced by a lot of glam, you know, Bowie, Queen, T-Rex, Mop the Hoople's Sweet Slade, because they were these bands that infiltrated the top 40. They were the bands sandwiched in between Tony Orlando and Dawn and some other just tragically sad music that we'd hate, Engelbert Humperdinck or whatever, you know. And and there'd be this one band on top of the pops. You go, ooh, look at that. And it's Sweet doing Ballroom Blitz. It's Slade doing Mama, I'm All Crazy Now. It's David Essex doing Rock On. It's... It's Bowie, Gene Genial, Rebel Rebel, and Metal Guru, Telegram Sound by T-Rex. Three-minute songs with big drums, big choruses, big guitars, and hooks. So that was our main influence, as much as we'll always admire and, and, and nod towards Zeppelin and Deep Purple and that lot for the power. Uh, but it's more ACDC, to be quite honest, and it's certainly more... Beatles and Stones, who kinks when it comes to wanting to be iconic songwriters as well as kids in a band, you know. Yeah. And when we got together in my mom and dad's house, in my bedroom, when I I met Pete Willis, Sav, and Tony Kenning, our then drummer, for the first time, they were just really impressed with my record collection. That was the first thing. It wasn't like an audition where I had to sing in front of anybody. I don't think I'd have been able to do that. You know, we were just getting to know each other to see if we had anything at all in common. Um, and this is where it gets strange because right in as we were forming, Sheffield, England was absolutely just teeming with electro pop. Everything that was coming out of Sheffield was the Human League, Heaven 17, yeah. Clock DVA, and there was the Thompson Twins just around the corner, ABC. And we were this standout sore thumb kind of, no, 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 we want to do the thin Lizzy UFO type thing, you know. And and at the same time as they're looking at my record collection, which was full of Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush, as well as UFO and Thin Lizzy, that was the difference because one of them would pick up my first Peter Gabriel and go, oh, cool, you like this too, so do I. Because we weren't just listening to the Scorpions or Judas Priest or whatever was becoming popular in 77. We were, were listening to Eddie and the Hot Rods and Dr. Feelgood and the Pistols and the Clash and the energy that those bands create and the kind of anti-societal kind of posturism. It just made me, when I suggested the name Def Leppard, it was born out of, it wasn't because of the Led Zeppelin thing. We didn't even see that at first because it was spelt correctly when I suggested it. So it was much more the flying lizards or the boomtown rats. You know, it was an animal with either a, a, a hearing issue or a, the boomtown rats were rats from boomtown. Flying lizards yeah. were lizards that could fly. This yeah. was a leopard that was deaf. It was more a reference to that kind of like, it's like horses. 
Whenever I watch a horse race, I think, who the hell named that horse? What a stupid name for a horse. But when that horse wins 10 races in a row, it's not a stupid name anymore. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. basically what happened with Def Leppard. And Tony, our original drummer, was the one who suggested we, because it sounded better than it looked. We liked the sound of it. It had that cool sound to it. It just didn't look good. He suggested we phonetically spell it. And so we we had it written down on a bit of paper and you just crossed out the A and stuck a, a, a line down the O to turn it into a P. And it wasn't until we rewrote it out weeks later that somebody said, it looks like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and we funny. went, well, okay, fair enough. You know, whatever. Um, doesn't matter. They were, you know, they were still around, but they were coming to the end of their time, I suppose, you know, and it, or it wasn't a major concern for us in... 1977 you know so that's how the name of the band came about and then that's how the band came around we were you know we tony went about looking for a rehearsal room and he found one in an old spoon factory in downtown sheffield which was wonderful because once we cleaned it out we had that room 24 7 most bands that we knew rented the room above a pub for two hours hunked the gear in played for 20 minutes and said, you've got to go we've got a wedding function yeah. and then they'd hunk it back out again we were in from August of 77 until we signed our record deal. You know, yeah. um, it was the most, it was a, it was our den. It was, you've seen probably video footage of, I believe maybe Soundgarden had one or Pearl Jam, sorry, have got one and Metallica have got one, but theirs is more like a warehouse or an aircraft hangar. And it's their, comp it's their hang. It's where yeah. they rehearse. They keep all their storage stuff. They keep all their archive stuff. I was like a baby version of that, but it was about, uh, 20 feet by 12. So it was like a big bedroom yeah, size-wise. Yeah. But it, it, it was, it was huge. And it was, you know, we had the drums up on a riser. We had a kettle in the corner and a record player and all the gear permanently set up. The only thing that ever left that room on a daily basis was us and our instruments. If Steve and Pete wanted to take their guitars home to practice or write or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know. Def Leppard, and when you drop the A and it just became D-E-F, that was before I think anybody was really using that term DEF. And at least one of the mm -hmm. things that I heard about was that Rick Rubin came to you when he was thinking about Def Jam Records and asked Correct. you. Okay, so that's an amazing He asked story. Cliff Bernstein, our then manager, who rightfully or wrong, wrongly said, uh, yeah, fine, because he was either probably friends with Rick Rubin, never thought to like sell it to him for $10 million or anything like that. <laughs> We get yeah. it away, you know. I mean, but in fairness, I don't think there's any ownership really in the one one word. But it's Otherwise, pretty anybody that used three words, only anybody that stole three words or accidentally borrowed three words from somebody else's song would be in deep trouble, and there'd be so many lawsuits going around. So oh, the fact true. that we got credit for it is good enough. Huh? Yeah, but that's a pretty incredible story too. That Rick Rubin starts Def Jam Records, and that's taking the deaf from Def Leppard. Well, deaf is culturally cool to be deaf. <laughs> well, deaf is certainly part of the culture. I want to get in the song, obviously the classic song, Pour Some Sugar from me, On Me, and from the great album Hysteria. And in between going into the studio, what was the overall feeling of the band and you just, I guess, mentally about what you were trying to accomplish? Well, the Rick action actually happened in the, in the, during the recording and it wasn't before we started it was new year's eve new year's day 1984 we were 84 85 yeah we started working on the follow-up to pyromania in ireland uh in dublin island in february of 84 now, rick was still very much too armed at the time i try and think back to then 
And it's not like we ever sat down and had some kind of like psychiatric, you know, revelations where we'd sit down and go, so how do we feel? But looking back <laughs> individually for me or collectively for us as a band, I don't think we were really thinking at all because we literally, we got into Dublin a year and three days after the first show on the Pyromania tour, which happened to be Phil Collins' first ever gig with us at the Marquee in uh, in London, the legendary Marquee. And that, that led us to September of that year, only a, a mere nine months later, 55,000 people at Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego. Yeah. And then we had a, a little run in Europe, we went to uh, the Far East in like Australia, Japan, and uh, Singapore, I think it might have been, or Thailand in February of 84. And then we were from there, we went straight to Dublin to start thinking about putting something together for what would be the follow up to Pyromania. But having been on the road for a year and never been away from our homes for that amount of time, I think we all just kind of took a collective sigh of relief that we weren't going to be taking our clothes out of our suitcase for a little while. We'd rented this house in an area of Dublin called Bootestown, which is just on the, it's a suburb. And we all moved into this house together. It's a little bit like that English TV sitcom, The Young Ones. I don't, you know, it was on MTV in the 80s. It was very popular in the UK. But The Young Ones was basically who we were. We were young and we were all living under the one roof and it was completely mad. And for the first two weeks we set up a little demo studio in the back room but we drank more alcohol than the the actual island of ireland probably did taking us it was insane because we were just relieved i think to be in one place but we were excited the tour was done we were excited that the tour was successful we were excited that we'd sold so many records and then i think it just slowly starts to seep in like okay now what yeah. And that now what was exacerbated a lot by Mutt saying to us that he couldn't produce the next record because he needed to take some time off. You've got to remember, this is 84. He'd been working nonstop in the UK since 75. Yeah. So it'd be like nine years, long before Highway to Hell, where he became a, a household name. He'd been doing loads of stuff that was nearly big in the UK. But, well, you know, like the Boomtown Rats were huge and they did have some success in the states but he was working with a lot of other bands like the motors and supercharge and city boy who were relatively well known in the uk but i don't think they really broke out internationally but he'd been working really really hard and then in the early 80s obviously after highway to hell and bond passing away acdc were are probably a little panic stricken and they were ah oh, you know we've got to keep Mutt on board to n navigate us through these rough waters which is a great kind of learning curve for us for what was to come four years later. Yeah. But um he, you know, he helped them audition. They they got Jonna, they did Back in Black, and it, it it was a different band. I mean, to a lot of people, they don't know who Bond Scott is. And that's really strange because to us it was like all Bond and then who was this guy with a flat cap? Oh, right. he used to be in a band called Geordie. I saw Geordie on top of the Pops in 1972. Yeah. It's like, wow. And he, then he did the cars and he did Foreigner. And all this kind of stuff. And he had a lot, a lot of success. And then he, he he did High and Dry for us. And eventually after Four and a Four. And then he did Pyromania, which took about nine months to record. And it was a long process. It was a tiring process. And I don't know what he did after Pyromania. But I all I know is a year after we finished Pyromania tour, you know, this 
release the album and finish the tour. Muck came over to Dublin with us for the initial songwriting sessions. And he was in great form. Don't get me or great, you know, he was always a brilliant referee for us. He was the guy that would, okay, who's got what? And we'd go through our bucket load of riffs and little lyric lines and stuff like that. And you go, well, that's good. That's good. That's not so good. Save that for your solo album is one of the lines <laughs> that you say. <laughs> and we would start piecing these things together. And yeah. by the time he dropped the bombshell that he couldn't produce the record and we went through the process of like, okay, who are we going to try and get? And we went through so many different kind of, I don't know, names and suggestions. And for some bizarre reason, and I'll say this out loud and, you know, with the greatest of respect, we went with Jim Steinman and I have no idea why we did because Jim Steinman is not a producer. Jim Steinman is a songwriter. Yeah. And I think our management were a little concerned that we were, we'd be okay with the physical aspects of recording a record, but we might need a song doctor or something like that, which was both. What would be the first to say, look, guys, this bridge, it needs to be better than this. Whereas we'd all be maybe thinking it, but none of us has got the balls to say it, you know. And Jim, uh, Jim, just for, somebody, you know? just for everybody out there, Jim Steinman, songwriter with Meatloaf, collaborator with Meatloaf. Yeah, and, a massive, yeah. one of the biggest selling records of all time, about out of hell. But it was produced by Todd Rundgren. Mm -hmm. So I would be like going, why is Todd Rundgren not on the list then? Why are we not talking to him? <laughs> Yeah. Why are we not talking to Jeff Lynn? Why are we not talking to Chris Thomas? Why are we not talking to Trevor Horn? Why are we not talking to these great producers out there? Which we probably were, and they all turned us down. But Jim agreed to do it, and Mutt didn't seem too perturbed because he said, these, some of the, these songs, they'll develop, you know, they'll be fine. And when we left Dublin to go to Holland to start recording with Jim, we had Women, we had Gods of War, we had Animal, the first draft version of it. We had about six or seven songs. We didn't have a whole album, but we never were the band that wrote all 10 songs before we went in. Musically, we may have done. We spent, I think, on the previous two records, High and Dry and Pyromania, we went into John Henry's or somewhere like that in London, and we'd come out of there a month later with 10 backing tracks, but we didn't have any top lines written. Hmm. And me and Mott would sit down, okay, which song do you want to do today? And we'd pull out, oh, let's do that fast one. And it'd be a song, Stage Fright. And he'd say, okay, you got any ideas? And four clock that afternoon we'd pretty much have the basics of it done and then we'd start demoing the vocals out that evening and work on it for the next god knows how many days but with with this one we we did have lyrics and melodies top lines and solos worked out and everything for thinking six songs maybe um and also songs that didn't make the album were done and finished songs like fractured love which ended up on retroactive and uh, a song called i want to be your hero which was originally called love bites Mm. Um, but we stole the line and put it into a different song. So yeah. we had probably about eight, nine, maybe even 10 songs. And we went over to Holland to start working with Jim and, and it just didn't work out. There was nothing about the relationship that worked. He wasn't a bad person, but he was oil and water when it came to musical differences and attitudes to how we record. And we just, having worked with Mutt Lang, it was a, I'm sorry to say this, but it was a huge step down, technically. For me, yeah. he had a fantastic engineer in Neil Dorfman, and he even Nelly, as we called him, he couldn't get his head around why this Jim wanted to do everything spontaneous, and we're like, no, we'd like to build building blocks from the bottom up, you know, um, taking a leaf out of our previous work and bands that we'd read about, which is why we did this in the first place, whether it right. be. The you know, the Queen or the Latter-day Beatles stuff, which was 
you've seen the documentaries, it wasn't written in a day. You know, it took them forever to write certain songs and they'd come back to them a year or two later. So it was just the natural order of things that wasn't working out for us, you know. And so we had to part company with Jim Steinman and bring in Nigel Green, who was our engineer on High and Dry and parts of Pyromania. So we felt comfortable with Nigel because he knew how he worked and we knew how he worked. It's nothing worse than going into the studio so you've never met. It's like marrying a, a woman, you know, like a, a, an arranged marriage. Well, I would imagine. I mean, it, it, yeah. It's, it's, I don't want to walk into a studio with a guy that goes, okay, let's get singing. I don't know the guy. I'm not, I'm right. not comfortable with it, you know. Yeah. Um, it took us a while to get used to, to Jim, and then we didn't, eventually we just didn't like the way it was working out. Nigel knew who we were. We'd been through that process with him, and he was fine. And we were making a decent record. We were, But we were making Pyromania 2. That's mm. what we were doing. And right. we were treading water and we weren't really keen on, on that fact, but we were waiting to see if something would happen because it's not like the magic was there on day one with High and Dry or Pyromania. It really didn't, the penny didn't drop or the it didn't click into place until right towards the end, especially with Pyromania because we did the drums last. So we didn't really know what the records were going to sound like until after I'd nearly finished all the vocals, they'd done all the guitars, and then we're going to do these massive big drums backwards. Everything's doing the whole album backwards. It was a whole new process. Even Mutt didn't know what he was doing, but we were willing to go along with him because he's Mutt Lang, you know. And Let me ask you about that. It turned out so brilliantly that yeah. when we got to doing the next record, we wanted to take that even further. And Jim wanted to go back to the basics. And we're like going, no. We're not going, we're not about, we've done Sgt. Pepper, we're going on to do the White Album, and you want us to go, go back to doing Beatles for Sale. It's not going to happen, you know. So we got rid of him, we worked with Nigel, and then during the Christmas break, we'd, we'd been four months working on this album. That's when Rick's accident happened. Ah, okay, okay. I want to go back to something you were saying, where it took a long time, you were working, working on, on on high and dry pyromania, and it didn't. And there was a point that it felt right. Was it kind of an aha moment where, okay, this is Def Leppard. This this is exactly what we were all about and what we were yeah, looking for. Yeah, and he was for. right at the very end because, like I said, we had a lot of aha moments when we would find the missing link. You know, I'm like forever, Rock of Ages. We had the song, we had no title. We could very well have been discussing this song, but I I just don't remember too much about the actual backtrack and how it was written. But I do remember that we'd let this church organization or choir or whatever borrow the studio overnight. Um, and when we came back in the next day, other than knocking a few microphones over, they'd also left a hymn book in the control room and it was open to the song, the hymn Rock of Ages. Amazing. And we we were just going la 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 la. Yeah. La, la, la. And I just went, holy shit. You know, I went, Mutt, what about this? Yeah, I mean that's that that's uh, we, we have a aha moment, Yeah, there's you know? something up. We there. had lots there's of those <laughs> Yeah, lots of those in the writing thing, but from a sound point of view, yeah, we just had this beatbox thing going off in the background. It was quite rough, and then we started programming drums that sounded a bit more like the drums, so we'd have an idea. And then right at the end, Rick came in and started playing real percussion and cymbals and stuff like this. So it had the feel. Yeah. And it was only then that it all 
what we'd done, we weren't sure if it was going to work. And then it did. So everybody was a little nervous. But once we got it finished, I mean, I remember when we were doing the sessions for the Hysteria album and we were doing them the same way. We had like a crappy drum sound and we were working. So we were visited in the studio by Jan Ackerman, the legendary Jan Ackerman from the band Focus, who were a Dutch band. And he heard what we were doing and he said, you can't do that. It'll never work. He said, yeah, we says, no, it will never work. Said, okay, listen to this. So we put photograph on from the previous record and he listened to it. He said, yeah, I know, this is amazing. He said, we did the drums last. He went, no way. He's like, oh, okay, <laughs> take it back. So, yeah. you know, you, you're educating seasoned musicians that would go the standard route. Imagine, Focus, they just set up in a studio, organ, guitar, drums. Right, play right. play live. Of course they did. It was 1970, 1971. We were talking 1984 now. Queen have been using what sounds like machines on things like uh, Radio Gaga and stuff like that. And it's like, we're incorporating all these modern sounds that... Frankie Goes to Hollywood would use it. And any band, the Human League, we were trying to get all this modern digital technology and intertwine it with classic rock and roll. And that's where it didn't work with Jim. Um, but Nigel saw that knew it worked because he'd done it with us in the past. And we knew that it would work. But during that Christmas break, 84 into 85, when Rick lost his arm, we were all on a break. So everybody's back home in England and dealing with the news. And a couple of days go pa past. He's in a coma. We all get in our cars wherever we live. And, you know, I think Steve and Phil were actually in Paris, jumped on a plane. We all met up in Sheffield to go visit him. It, you just can't help yourself. You know, you see your, your mate in, a, in this condition in a bed and you all look at each other in the waiting room going, wow, now what? Yeah. You do. You can't help it. It's like you... Your compassion is there, but your your overall thing is it's the elephant in the room is we're in a band. Yeah. And the drummer just lost his arm. You know what I mean? So it did come up like what now? And it matter of minutes, we said, well, once the dust settled and we've got over New Year, everybody goes to say bye-bye to their family. We need to get back in the studio and get working on this record ASAP. Rick had done the drums. Uh, he'd done some drum tracks on half a dozen songs. So we could be carrying on, you know, doing overdubs for, for months if we wanted to, you know, with, with the work that we'd already got on tape. So we all said our goodbyes. And, and I mean, he was, when I left, he was still in a coma. So I never got to speak to him. But then eventually, you know, you get on the phone and you talk and he was supposed to be in hospital for six weeks. Uh, so Sorry, for six months. But after six weeks, he checked himself out. Amazing. And within about another two or three weeks of being bored, stupid at his mom and dad's, he got on a plane and flew back out of Holland where we were recording to just hang, you know? Yeah. And during that time he was in hospital, he'd been visited by Mutt. And Mutt Lang, who was on this sabbatical, had basically sat with Rick and said, this is not the end. He said, you can play drums with three limbs. This is doable. And Rick had a piece of foam at the bottom of his bed to help him sit himself up to eat and stuff. And he started tapping on it and using it and doing threes instead of fours and working in his mind, just moving what he'd always done with one arm, with with two arms and moving it to, to his foot instead. So, you know, it was a process of a long drawn out process for him, but he just had to get his head round. And eventually... 
I think that between that and just natural rest, Muck Lang in, uh, I'd say, the spring of 85, called up and said, you know what, I'm ready to come back and do this. Because I think he realized that with this as well as the album, that was a lot of pressure for any individuals never or as a collective to deal with. It's like there's got to be the guidance that we would relied on in the past because we were in uncharted territory. Here yeah. And we really didn't know how we were going to negotiate our way through it, you know. So he he said, Look, I'm 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 happy to come back, you know. So he did. And what he did, he was very smart, you know. He would listen to the work that we'd done and go, Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Nothing was ever great with Mark. <laughs> it was that was his way, you know. It's like you could do the best vocal you've ever done and go, Yeah, fine, it's fine, it's fine. But he yeah, did it in really? a way but he did it in a way that was like he was a mate, right? You know, it wasn't a Yeah, he came on board and he very cleverly said, Okay, this song doesn't his song sounds out it's a year old already. This is a great melody and a great lyric, but the backing track is just not right. And this is the song Animal. And he'd say, Okay, I did a vocal with him. We worked in Paris in the in the summer of eighty-five and did the vocal in Paris. And I did it to the original backing track. And then we were listening to it and the guys were like going, this is, Joe's voice sounds great, but the track, no, you know. And then they just came up with this brilliant idea of, okay, we've got all the sliders here. Let's leave the drums up. Let's leave the vocal up. Pull the bass and the guitars down. All right, guys, play along with that vocal and come up with something. So we wrote the song backwards. We had the melody. We had the rhythm. We yeah. had the tempo. We had no chords. Yeah. But we did, but we changed <laughs> it all around. And that's the backing track that we all know and love now. And it just updated the song to the yeah. point where it still sounds old, modern today, yeah. 37 years later sort of thing. These were the things that we did with more. He would listen to a song like, say, God to War, which we'd had, he'd been there when it was birthed. And then it is now it's going through its nappy period. And, you know, it's being breastfed through the process of <laughs> making this record. And he'd go, OK, you know what? Let's just put some more guitars on this part. And he would get... Phil and and Steve to play these guitar parts. And then we realized a month later that what he'd done, he hadn't added to these guitars. He'd changed them. Yeah. As he put more and more guitars on, he just lost all the Steinman stuff, all the stuff that, that we'd done with Nigel. And all of a sudden, we'd just replace everything bit by bit. Yeah. And he was like, because he knew it would be heartbreaking for us to start from scratch. Right. So right, he right, just right. overdubbed and then removed the core element that we overed up so he, he took it out okay we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with joe elliott of the great band def leopard a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing i'm dr mike host of going there it was the first song where i wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
we started getting more creative again. And, and I remember between 85 and 86, we had this moment where they were doing, like, for example, I wouldn't even be at the studio for two weeks because they're doing like, guitars and they're doing 11 different guitar parts on the song Hysteria and all this kind of stuff. So I'd pop in and out. I'd go in every day and say hi and listen to what they're doing. But I wouldn't be, they wouldn't need me for anything. So I've got my stuff set up at home in my hotel room in Holland. And uh, I used to I used to go to this sauna, um, which was across the road from our hotel. And I was in there one day and I heard this music in the cantina and the in the bar. And it was this like really hypnotic drum, African drum rhythm. And I'm like listening and I'm going, what is this? And the guy gave me the cassette. And I said, can I borrow it? Because they knew I were, you know, I was they were fine with that. So I made a loop of this one particular part where there was no music playing, and I turned it into the demo that is Rocket. Um, it, and all I had was the drums, and I had the chords for the chorus. And I took it into the studio, and I said, I've got this idea. And I played it to, I think it was Phil and, maybe been Phil and Mutt, and the rest of the band may have been there, I don't remember. But I do specifically remember everybody going, oh, yeah. Well, we can work on this. <laughs> yeah. We built from that very, very basic idea. We had Rocket. One day we went to a, a disco. Mick Jagger was in town and he was in town with, he was in this four studios in this complex. And while we were working there, there was so many people came through. Elton John went in and out. Mink DeVille came in and out. Jagger came in twice. He brought Jeff Beck with him. But one night Jagger said, oh boy, you want to go out over a drink? And we went to this disco with Mick and um, State of Shock came on, which he'd done with Michael Jackson. And we were all listening to him watching how it didn't clear the dance floor because it was a rock disco track. Yeah. And we all came back to the studio the next day going, we need a song like that. And that's where Excitable came from. So huh. we were inspired by things like, you know, going for a drink with Mick Jagger. Yeah. Or to me going to a sauna and hearing Burundi Black on a cassette. And we it's started writing more songs. And that's you know, pretty Armageddon, amazing. it got completely yeah. changed from its original tune. Rocket was new. Love and Affection was written there. Um, Excitable was written there. And we had the 11-track album done. I was doing the vocals on Armageddon. It. This was going to be the thing. And we took a tea break, coffee break, and I went and picked up this guitar in the corner of the room excuse me <laughs> for everybody who's listening out there joe just picked up his guitar and while mutt was at the room i was just playing and i was singing you know the court the chorus title and Mutt came, he came in behind me, he didn't, you know, and he said, what, what is that? I genuinely think, I always have thought that he thought it was me playing a kink song or a stone song or a who song or something. Because those chords are pretty universal. When you picked it up, though, the, the, the name Pour Some Sugar On Me already came out of you? You yeah, I, I just, I was just singing. Yeah, that's that was the reason that Mutt went, okay. He said, that's one of the best hooks I've heard for five years or whatever he said, you know. And he said, we have to do that. 
And there was only me and him actually in the complex or in the, actually in Holland. I think Sav had gone back to Sheffield and Phil and Rick was probably in Amsterdam maybe and, and Phil and Steve were in Paris, I believe. Well, just they'd gone away for the weekend. So I, I said, there's no way they're going to go for that because uh, he's, you know, we've got 11 songs. We've been working on this album for two and a half years. And he's like, no, 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 no. This, this could be a really important song. So he said, play it again. And so I did. And he said, okay. And he literally stopped what we were doing, which is the vocal on Armageddon it, got a fresh reel of two-inch tape onto the big machine, spent 20, 30 minutes programming a drum thing that sounded like we will rock you. And then he goes, play the chords again. And I did. And I, we banged it out, this, this very rough version of the chorus and left a hole over the drums for future work, if you like. And then two, three days later... We'd also put down the rough gang vocals on the chorus as well. The rest of the guys came back and Mort went, we got some good news and we got some bad news, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. He said, uh, he says, we've got a, a 12th song and you could see everybody's eye rolls like, oh, <laughs> really? Here we said, go again. Bear with us. And and so, but just listen to this. And, you know, they played, played the demo to everybody else. And they, you know, within 30, 40 seconds, they're all smiling going, Oh, yeah. And Mutt went, I promise you, we can bang this out real quick. And from from a backing, you know, from a backing track point of view, the guitars, Phil came up with the guitar riff. It all came together pretty organically and pretty quickly. It was for sure the quickest thing we did on that record. And it was a complete afterthought, but became possibly the most important song, not in just in, on the history of the album, but in our entire career. Because it remains a hit. You know, it's somewhere in the world, apparently. It's played every two minutes. And and so we did. We banged it out pretty quick. We Original melody was a bit more like Come Together by the Beatles, but we doubled up the, the meter and it became a bit more rappy. And then we once we'd worked out a, a melody for the verses, me and Mort had these tiny little... They used to be very popular in the eighties. Micro cassette players, yeah, they had little cassettes, and you could just, you know, make no. They were businessmen would make a note to secretary, buy more coffee, those type of things. And we we had one each, and we both went to opposite ends of the control room next to the big speakers in the mall, and he hit the play button, and we just started scatting like Cab Calloway. And then we swapped tapes. And then we deciphered what we thought the other person was singing. And I think I thought he said, love is like a bomb baby, come and get it on. And we wrote that down and we both just big eyed went, yes, that's the opening line. And yeah. I just said, this is Mark Boland. This is T-Rex. And then he went, great, that's, let's go with it. So from the rest of the songwriting session onwards me and him were just bouncing things back and forth he's got a book full of lines i've got a book full of lines and you're splashing through going how about demolition man how about demolition woman can i be your man yeah that works you know we would so we do things on the fly and we just built it up that way you know and you know in a day or two or whatever you know maybe two hours i don't remember it's very exciting but i do remember the general's kind of fleshing Fleshing out the bones of this song happened quite quickly, and it was very exciting. And it didn't delay the the release of the album because there was no real plan anyway. It was just going to be finished when it was finished. But it became the twelfth song, and and as I said, 
still to this day very important tune for for this band yeah it's pretty amazing when I mean, a number of the stories you were talking about so there you had this moment of inspiration it just kind of you you were riffing in the room with your acoustic guitar and mutt heard it and was like okay that's it and then it happened really really quickly and it has become if not well, not just one of your most iconic songs. You say it's probably the most important song of yours, but a number of the things you were in a club, you heard this Michael Jackson, Mick Jagger song, and that inspired you. You like, like you took that, an idea came from that and created another song. And you had a number of those moments where instead of letting it go, you took it and seized it and acted on it and it became huge hits of yours. The, the process is only different by virtue of the fact that I'm telling the story. But the fact is that it's no different to when we started out. What we did is we went to a nightclub with Jagger, and it's like, oh, this song came on. And you hear this track, and you're like, didn't clear the dance floor yet. It's got loads of guitars. This is really cool. When we were kids, before we knew each other, we heard songs the same way. You went to see a band play your club, a club, or you went to see somebody at the City Hall, or you heard a song on the radio. And it inspires you to want to be in a band. So all, all we, the only difference is this is a specific story. But everything you hear on on through the night was just us being inspired by stuff that we'd heard in the past, whether it be Rush or UFO or T-Rex or Davy Bowie. It didn't matter, really. It was just that continuing inspiration. It comes from different places. I mean, when I, I read a story that the Roberta Flack song, Killing Me Softly, was written about Don McLean's American Pie. Huh, I didn't know that. that the songwriter the songwriter for Killing Me Softly was actually wrote the song having heard American Pie. The song killed him. And huh. or her, whoever wrote it. And it's like, wow, that's incredible. So it's you know, and, and they're two totally different songs. It's not like the guy tried to rip off American Pie. Yeah, yeah. He just wrote a song inspired by it. And it, it could well have been Minnie Ripperton's Loving You. I mean, who knows, you know, but we we hear things all the time. And we get inspired by them. And that's just two examples where the, me in the sauna here in the Burundi Black, us in the nightclub here in State of Shock, or Mutt coming up behind me and in those three chords. He did the same thing on everything. You know, when he'd say to Phil, what have you got? And Phil says, well, I've got this. You go, that's great. It was exactly the same thing, but it was done in a controlled environment of a songwriting session a month before we started write, write, you know, recording or whatever. This happened at the end of an album that's been on the go for over two years. So it had to be more organic and yeah. it had to be more desperate and it had to be more like, we got to do this quick. Whereas like when you're writing at the beginning, it's like, ah, we'll finish it tomorrow, I'll be fine. It's a totally different headspace, but they're all similar in the sense of the fact that somebody like Mutt picks up on stuff. When, when Steve first started playing the guitar like for gods of war might be like oh that's in, that's beautiful that's brilliant play that well anybody got anything that can go on the end of that and then steve will go yeah well i've got this as well it's like wow off we go you know and out of the bucket load of riffs comes a song you know it, it gets yeah. pieced together and he's the referee he's the he's the guy that that gives us that extra vote if you like to to do the the right thing or save it for your solo album and in in those control environments, that's how it always was. But with this one, this was a this is this is like walking past 
walking down the street finding a hundred dollar bill. This was like one of those like whoa moments. Yeah. And he yeah. wasn't gonna let it go. He wasn't gonna go, you know what? Real shame just to save it for the next record. Thank God he didn't say that. Yeah. You know, thank I mean, God he, you know, because we all didn't want to do it, but he did. And he gave us that like, come on, you can and all of a sudden it's the gang again. All six of us are like going, All right, come on, let's do this. How hard can it be? And thank God we did. But we've never been shy of doing the work. It's just making the decision. Sometimes you can get real lazy. On that one, we didn't. We went, we followed through, and we've never not followed through since because you've always got that as an inspiration. For example, on um, Diamond Star Halos, the album was finished by six, seven weeks, I think. And so Phil had gone off to just do a songwriting session with some guy from the same publishing company, just as an exercise. And he called me up and he said, I've written this song with a guy called Dave Bassett. He said, do you want to hear it? And I said, sure. So he sent me the MP3 and I played it. I went, I phoned him up like two minutes later. He went, you've got to be kidding me. Why are we not doing this? Oh, you know, I don't care. Roger Daltrey doesn't care that he's singing Pete Townsend's lyrics. Freddie Mercury didn't care he was singing Brian May's lyrics or Roger Taylor's lyrics. I don't care. This is too good a chance to miss. And so I said, send it to everybody else. So he did. And literally, I swear to God, Sav's email five minutes later just went, sugar anyone? And what he meant was not comparing song for song. He's yeah. comparing the situation. The album's done and Phil comes in with Kick. And it was the first song that we released off Diamond Star Halos and listen to it with headphones. And it's all over the place because yeah. it's his demo. We've got like, Backing vocals are loose as a goose and they're everywhere. And we listen to it going, leave them on. They sound great. Makes it sound like the New York Dolls. Instead of it all being stiff and regimented, it's all over the shop. And that's how we wanted Diamond Star Halos to be. Sugar, not so much. Sugar was very much in the 80s, you know, born in the 80s. Synclaviers and all these sampling machines and make it rigid and all that kind of stuff. And it'll be loose as a goose on stage, but rigid on the record. But, you know, these stories, we've got, bucket loads of them throughout our career as every band <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. been around for 46 47 years they should have the same amount of stories my god when you listen to the mccartney thing with rick rubin on apple those stories you know when they put the sliders up and you listen to you know there's no wonder rick rubin looks like a kid in a candy store because it's mccartney and it's the Beatles. And I'm sure you could do the same thing with Jagger and Richards. You could do the same thing with Ray Davis. You could do the same thing with Pete Townsend and a lot of other wonderful artists that have we've coattail ridden with on for years and always will, because these are the guys that inspired us to want to pick up a mic, a drumstick, a guitar pick, or whatever, you know. Um, but they, yeah, they are two specifics there. The 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 fact that kick was exactly the same as sugar just goes to show that all these years later, when an opportunity ar arises, we don't go, yeah, been there, done that, not bothered. We followed through because Kick became a very important song. Yeah, good for you. That's good. And that is why what you were just talking about, all these stories and the great stories and um, the journey you guys have gone through, that's why we do this podcast. That's why we do this series is to uncover some of those great stories and Sugar is, we, we got into it a little bit, but it was great to hear the whole, everything that you were talking about, the album Hysteria, and also getting into some of Pyromania too. So I really appreciate all of that. And so many great hits. Let's also not forget, let's also not forget that that's just the song. 
That's yeah. just us getting the song written. That song was a semi hit in in England. I think top twenty hit, but nothing not like you know number one for seven weeks. Right. It was a top twenty hit in America. It absolutely failed at rock. It failed at rock. It was just came out and they were like, nah, it's too pop, not interested. Then in Florida, God bless them, but some of the ladies that dance on poles. I don't know what we're allowed to call them in 2023. Let's just you call can, them dancers. You, you can call them anything. You can. You're a rock and roller. Well, I'm a I'm a gentleman, so I'm going to call them dancers. But they dance on the pole in skimpy underwear, etc. Maybe not even. Anyway, they started dancing to this song because of the tempo. Was I remember saying when we wrote it, it's got to be danceable, and so it wasn't. We didn't do it fast. We did it very mid tempo, and it really worked and six months after it was like not a big hit on rock it started getting requested because it's getting danced to in strip clubs and then the people leaving the strip clubs are requesting the song on radio we had already made a really crap video for it in ireland which is the demolition woman you know on a crane but then it was suggested that we should do a live version of it so it looked a bit more mtv you know yeah so we did a new video for it and the song started getting requested on MTV. Then he starts getting requested more on radio. And it literally spread from Florida all the way across to the West Coast, like a wildfire. And while this was, we were away. We were touring Europe while this was happening. We came back in the summer of 88 to this song being huge. But it was an accident almost. It wasn't planned, you know. And I find a lot of the great stories are, there's a book out on, you know, the, the Christmas Story movie? Yeah, there's a book explaining how that film was an absolute flop. How it was pulled from the cinemas yeah. before December of 1983, <laughs> found its home on TNT and on VHS tape, and eventually went on to sell six and a half million Blu-rays, and becomes a staple that's shown 24 hours a day on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, or whatever. And now it's a classic. But when you read the book, you're going, how did this happen? There's so many circumstances. Only one of them didn't happen. The others wouldn't have followed. It's the same thing with Sugar. We did all that work. We we said yes to making the song. Mutt just happened to walk in while I was playing the chords. If I hadn't have picked up the guitar, wouldn't have happened. If he hadn't have said yes and then played it to the guys who then said yes, wouldn't have happened. It then got finished. It then came out. It didn't do anything. And then it did. And it's still doing it now. It just, it's a very bizarre set of circumstances as to why that song, more than any other, I, I wouldn't even say it's the best song we've ever done, but it's one of the most popular we've ever done. Certainly one of the most important. Yeah, I think we've written better songs than Sugar. But I also think the Rolling Stones have written better songs than Satisfaction or Start Me Up but I couldn't live my life without them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, certain, it's, songs, it's a... certain songs like Angie are more technically proficient from a lyrical point of view or whatever. But and I know Angie was a hit, but it, it's not satisfaction or start me up or give me shelter. Some songs just click for no reason. Sugar, we still to this day are always thankful for the dancers in Florida spreading the word and then it just going crazy across America and then across the whole of the world and remains a hit. That's yeah. the, that's the most uplifting part of the whole story and, and, and forever grateful are we that this is one of those songs, you know, there's a few literally you could almost count them on two hands. You know, there's 
your sweet home Alabamas, or there's the, you know, Let It Be, or, or like I said, Nick, pick the Stone song of your choice, or My Generation by the, by the Who. You've really got me by by the kinks. There's a few songs that are just, they're going to end up in sent off into space if they haven't already been. Right. For future other alien species to discover one day. Sugar will be one of those songs with a bit of luck. When I know that one's already gone up. We send a second one. Sugar will be on board if I've got anything to say about it. But uh, we're just fortunate. You know, we're, we're blessed. We, we're grateful. But we did the work. And it's like, to me, it's like you don't buy a lottery ticket. How can you ever expect to win? And that's yeah. what we did. We bought the ticket, you know. Yeah, yeah. What a great story about that. And so many of the best things that happen in life are that way, like serendipitous kind of things that you would never expect. But I didn't know that the song went nowhere and then all of a sudden came up uh, and rose up <laughs> from dancers in Florida who the beat and all of that. And then somehow it was absorbed into the zeitgeist. But it's a great story. Thanks for joining I don't want to take too My much pleasure. time, Joe, but I, I love going through all of this and um, all the great music that you guys have created. And you have a new album coming out again now in May, which is an entirely different. It's kind of a departure because, as as I understand it, Drastic Symphonies is with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, kind of reimagining your songs and look forward to hearing that, too. But look forward to seeing um, you on well, tour. Wait. Go wait ahead. till you hear the version of Sugar. Wait till you hear the new version of Pour Some Sugar on me. It will blow your mind. Wow. Wow. Okay. I want to hear an advanced track of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe. I'll make sure you get one. Joe, thank you so much for joining on Story Behind the Song. See ya. My pleasure. Thanks. That was Joe Elliott of Mega Rockers Def Leppard sharing his story behind the band's signature track, Pour Some Sugar On Me, from the 10 times platinum album Hysteria, one of the most successful rock and roll albums of all time. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. That's P as in Peter, C as in Cat, S like Sam, A like Apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, and Y like Yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies. 
loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.